0: This coming Sunday, on June the 21st, we'll gather together at 9.30 for worship. We're going to forego the second hour for a few more weeks until things stabilize, but we will gather together again for worship in just one week, so I hope that you are as excited about that as I am. I'm greatly looking forward to seeing each of you. I've seen a few of you here and there, but for us to get together will be a great celebration of our fellowship and of our union with Christ and with one another. Well, this, today we're going to continue in our teaching in John chapter 12. In this, today we're going to finish the chapter, moving all the way from verse 34 to verse, thir- to verse 50. And as a way of reminder, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. It is the triumphant entry, and he has entered into the city of Jerusalem with great fanfare. It's a parade-like atmosphere. There are thousands upon thousands who are welcoming him. They are waving palm branches in the air. They are shouting, Hosanna. They recognize that he is the long-expected Messiah. So as he gathers into the temple, uh, an unknown amount of time later, Jesus is in the temple and he is engaged with the people and his disciples and he's told that there are some Greeks who would like to see him. Now we don't know who they are. We don't know where they have come from or what it is they want to talk about. And it's as if Jesus is addressing their question and their concern without ever even talking to them, and without this concern or question even being identified within the pages of Scripture. Jesus says that his time has come, he must die. The eternal plan of redemption is about to be completed, and the idea that the Messiah, the one that they just welcomed into the city, was going to die, was completely unthinkable. The Jewish expectation at this time was for their Messiah to come in to overthrow the Romans with military might and to become a political ruler that would have no end. We've read from Daniel... Chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed." And so in many respects, this summarizes what the Jewish expectation for their Messiah was to come in and establish an everlasting dominion that would never, ever end. What the Jewish people didn't understand was that the messianic rule that they so longed for would come through the cross, not through military or political means. The Messiah is, first and foremost, a spiritual deliverer, and one day what he has accomplished through the cross would be physically experienced for all eternity when the new heavens and the new earth are created. So in this narrative, Jesus explains that if they want to participate in this messianic kingdom, they must first lose their lives for him, and then they must serve him. Those that serve Him and follow Him are promised to be where He is for all eternity, and those who follow and serve Him will be honored by the Father. Now after saying this, John records that Jesus was troubled in spirit recognizing that His death was imminent. That does not mean that Jesus was looking for a way to avoid this. It just meant that in His humanity He understood the great cruelty that He was about to experience And humanly speaking, he agonized and was greatly troubled by that. He asks the Father to glorify his name, and the Father responds by speaking from heaven and says, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Now, this comes from the Father in the audience of other people, and Jesus says that it was spoken for their sake, not for his because Jesus had a resolute determination to go to the cross and to complete the plan of redemption. So the people hear something. They hear the thunder or they hear a voice that they thought might be an angel, but they completely miss the message of what was said by the Father to Jesus. Jesus confirms that through His death, the Father will be glorified in judgment as the Father abolishes sin and evil once and for all. Through his death, the Father will be glorified in victory over the curse of sin and death. And then through his death, the Father will be glorified through the redemption of God's children as this eternal plan of redemption is experienced and enjoyed by those that God has chosen. So at this point in the narrative, we pick up in verse 34. We're going to go all the way through the end of the chapter. It's a very lengthy passage, so read with me, beginning in verse 34. The crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say, The Son of Man must be lifted up. Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart, so they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. Verse 41, these things Isaiah said, because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at that last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know this commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father told me. So in part two of this message that we're looking at today, we'll pick up in our outline with number five. Number five, we see the concern of the people. Verse 34, the crowd then answered him, we have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Now at this point, the crowd isn't identified. We don't know specifically who John is referencing here. It's possible that it just refers to those who are in Jesus' audience, those that have heard what it is he has said. It doesn't appear that there are any religious leaders in the audience. There certainly is no mention of the Greeks who sought Jesus out at the beginning of this narrative. But it is likely the people who have celebrated the arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem who have been long awaiting the arrival of their Messiah and the inauguration of his messianic kingdom. These are the ones that are hearing what Jesus has said, and these are likely the ones who have questions about what they've heard. So they have a question, number one, with the law. The concern they have is what it is that the law says. You'll notice... In your Bible, that the law is capitalized. And so, this isn't a reference to the Ten Commandments. It isn't a reference to the ceremonial law or a particular passage of Scripture. When you see law capitalized, it generally means a summarization of all of the Old Testament and what they would say the Scripture. The people have an intellectual understanding of what the Scripture says about the Messiah but there is a misunderstanding in what it actually means. They have this expectation that the Messiah is going to remain forever, which He will do, but not in a military political kingdom. He's not going to rule over them, but He is going to be a spiritual deliverer who will establish His spiritual kingdom and will initiate His messianic rule in spiritual ways. And then one day... On the last day, a physical reign will be established, and it will never, ever end. Now the crowd clearly understands what Jesus is saying. You are claiming to be the Messiah, and we think that you are. After all, we have welcomed you into this city with great fanfare. We have heard what you have said. We have seen what you have done. But you're talking about your death. And our Messiah dying doesn't fit our expectation of who the Messiah is. So the second concern that the people have is this. Who is the Son of Man? They understand the connection between the Son of Man and the Messiah. Messiah is called the Son of Man in Isaiah 9-7, in Ezekiel 37-25, and in Daniel 7-13. So they don't have a misunderstanding about the connection between the Messiah and the Son of Man. They also have a very clear understanding of what it means to be lifted up. They know that that means death. But they're confused. If you aren't the Messiah, if you aren't the Son of Man who is going to inaugurate His messianic rule by overthrowing the Romans, then who is? If it isn't you, who else can it be? While the narrative doesn't say it specifically, Jesus' response to this question implies that He knows He does not fit their expectation Therefore, they find it very difficult to believe in Him and the claims that He is making, and they are unbelieving in heart. Jesus issues, as a result of this concern, number six in our outline, the call to believe. He doesn't debate with them. He doesn't discuss this with them. He simply emphasizes the need for them to believe. Verse 35... So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. So as the first part of this call to believe, there is this request to walk in the light. Jesus again refers to himself as the light. This is a call back to his declaration of his being the light of the world, which in the previous chapters of John, a lot of time and detail were spent on at the Feast of Tabernacle and the Festival of Lights. In the midst of this, Jesus declares himself to be the light of the world. Now, in today, in the day that Jesus is speaking, His ministry of three plus years is quickly coming to an end. It's just a matter of days. And what Jesus is saying is it's going to be much harder for you to believe in me when I'm no longer there. Especially because I am about to die and that just doesn't fit into your agenda. So what Jesus is saying is this. It's imperative for you to walk in the light now because it's only going to get more difficult later. He uses an example of travel as an analogy of physical darkness and evil. Now, in primitive times, people would only travel during the day when they could see clearly and walk safely. To travel at night was very difficult and it was very dangerous. Jesus compared those who failed to listen to His warning about believing in Him to travelers caught out after nightfall, lost in the pitch blackness of a starless, moonless night. So walk in the light while you have the light, so that the darkness does not overtake you. The only way for them to avoid being lost in spiritual darkness was to believe in the light while they still have the light, to walk in the light, otherwise they don't know where they are going. Now this is not an ultimatum, to believe in me now, or you'll never be given another opportunity to believe in me later. It just simply acknowledges the need to believe in the now, because it's going to get more difficult after Jesus has been removed. So number two in this call to believe is to believe in the light. Not only walk in it, but to believe in it. Verse 36, While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and He went away and hid Himself from them. This really is the final call to salvation for the Jewish people well, Jesus is on the earth. He's about to die on the cross, something they don't understand, and something that will make believing in Him much more difficult. They should take what they know about Him now, what they have seen from Him now, and place their faith in what they know instead of being influenced by what they don't know or by what they don't understand. You know, it's the same difficulty we have today. People know who Jesus is. They know what Jesus has claimed to do. They know something about Jesus. But for them, there is a need to know something more, to understand something more, before they're willing to take that step of faith and to believe in Him. Jesus is putting that practice to rest by saying, believe in what you know now. It's just going to get harder the longer you wait. So to believe in him, to believe in the light, means that they will become the sons of light, becoming the children of God. So John records for us that after saying these things to the crowd of people around him, Jesus withdraws himself from them, and he has just now acted out the spiritual warning of the light being removed from them. In the next section of the narrative, we'll see John's commentary, On number 7 in our outline, the cause of unbelief. And this is undoubtedly the most difficult part of this passage. This begins in verse 37. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. So in spite of the numerous miracles and signs that Jesus performed, in light of the miraculous teaching that they had heard, Jesus was generally rejected as the Messiah. The fact of unbelief in the face of such irrefutable and powerful evidence makes clear the limitations of apologetics. While evidence can be given for the gospel truth, the response of the sinner is not limited to the mind and human reason, to facts and emotion, Salvation requires a regenerated heart, which is the work of the Holy Spirit. You can put all the facts in front of people, but they just aren't going to believe. People's emotions can be stirred in such a way that with great tearing and sobbing, they respond to Jesus, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there has been a regeneration of the heart. So in this section of our narrative, John lists two causes for Israel's unbelief. One is divine and the other is human. And taken together, they illustrate the connection between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. It is the same difficulty that we have as we deal with the doctrine of election. God calls to himself those that he chooses, yet even those who choose him, or who have been called by Him, must personally choose Him. So first we're going to look at, number one, divine sovereignty. This means that God has caused their unbelief. So in this passage, John quotes from Isaiah 53, 1, beginning of verse 38. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, "'Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed?' So, Isaiah asked the question, who has believed our report? And the answer to that question is, not very many. Although the arm of the Lord had been revealed to the nation of Israel, they still did not believe in Yahweh. So, the arm of the Lord is a reference to all of God's revelation of Himself It is all of God's intervention on behalf of His people. It is all of God's deliverance for His people. It is all of the provision that that God has made for His people. So God has provided the arm of Himself to the nation of Israel. They have heard the report that Isaiah has given as a result of His prophetic ministry. And the question is, who has believed? And the answer is... Not very many. You take all that God has done for the nation, up to the time of Israel, and who has believed, who has given themselves over to this God of deliverance, and the answer is, not very many. So as John quotes this passage, it is very obvious that he is making... An application of the same reality that is taking place in Jesus' ministry and earthly life which is coming to an end. All that they have seen Jesus do, all that they have heard Jesus say, the accumulation of everything still isn't enough for them to believe. It's also obvious that the arm of the, of the Lord is implied in the life and in the ministry of Jesus as he has ministered and come to the nation of Israel. So John gives first the divine reasoning and quotes from Isaiah 6:10 and verse 39, for this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. So Isaiah says the reason Israel did not believe was because God blinded their eyes and God hardened their heart. John is applying the same truth to those who are rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. In the same way the nation of Israel had denied Yahweh in the time of Isaiah, the nation of Israel is denying the Messiah in Jesus' earthly ministry. When the people came to Jesus, they encountered Him with blinded eyes and with hardened hearts. Now, Jesus quoted from this exact same verse, Isaiah 6.10 in Matthew 13.14 and in Mark 6.52. And when He did so, He was addressing the unbelief of those around Him. God has blinded your eyes and God has hardened your heart. Their spiritual blindness and the hardening of their heart was an act of judgment by God. You know, the judgment of God doesn't just come once and go away. The judgment of God continues to come as we deny Him, as we reject Him, as we rebel against Him, as we determine to live our lives for ourselves, by ourselves, as opposed to walking in the light. Verse 41, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Now, when Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord, as recorded in Isaiah 6, he was in the temple and he saw the train of God's robe fill the temple and he knew that he was in the presence of the Lord. So John sees in the words of Isaiah a reference to the glory of Christ Isaiah spoke these things because he saw Jesus' glory. The words of Isaiah 6.3 refer to the glory of Yahweh in the temple, but John makes no hard and fast distinction between the two. For John, what Isaiah saw in the temple was actually the glory of Christ the Messiah. To John, it is plain that Isaiah had in mind the glory revealed in Christ And it is plain that the rejection of Christ is consistent with Israel's rejection of of Yahweh as reported in in Isaiah 6.10. So we have this idea of divine sovereignty and the unbelief of the nation of Israel, but we have to couple that with number two, human responsibility. Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ was the culmination of years of rebellion, of misused privileges, and the forsaking of divine truth. Probably the greatest realization of that was looking into the lives and the teaching of the spiritual leaders of Israel, what it was they preferred, what it was they found the greatest honor in, what it was their lives were most built around, and it wasn't the divine truth of the Scripture But it was their place among men, a place of honor, a place of notoriety, a place of great respect, as opposed to a commitment to the truth, whatever that might mean for them personally. Now the terrible result was that when the truth came and the person of Jesus Christ, God incarnate, their Messiah, many could not believe. Thinking they could see They were in reality spiritually blind as Jesus dealt with in John chapter 9. But God's sovereign judicial hardening of Israel did not remove the responsibility of those who refused to believe in Christ. Commentator and author Leon Morris says this, When John quotes he hath blinded their eyes, he does not mean that the blinding takes place without the will or against the will of these people. These men chose evil. It was their own deliberate choice. It was their own fault. Author and commentator D.A. Carson adds this God's judicial hardening is not presented as the capricious manipulation of an arbitrary potentate cursing morally neutral or even morally pure beings, but as a holy condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do and be what they themselves have chosen. So there is this working together of divine sovereignty of hardening and human responsibility and rejecting who God is, and what God has said. Those who are unwilling to believe risk becoming unable to believe. It's the connection between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. The hearts of the people were hardened because of their ongoing rejection of the truth. Now we can see this example expressed as Moses dealt with the Pharaoh. Pharaoh, ten times, hardened his heart against God's call to let his people go. And ten times, God hardened the Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the people go. In the New Testament, we see this expressed in Romans chapter 1. There is this continual rejection and unbelief of God by the lost. And it is described as this. God gave them over to the lust or to the desires or to the sin that they so cherished in their lives. There comes a point in our continual rejection, our unwillingness to believe that God is going to harden our heart so that we are unable to believe. Our continual rejection of Christ can result in God hardening our hearts so that, it, so that we are not able to believe in Him. The personal choice and rejecting Jesus is illustrated by, quote-unquote, the rulers that we see in verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. So these rulers possessed a superficial belief, one that did not result in the regeneration of the heart even though it says they believed, their belief did not result in salvation. We saw this in John chapter 5, verse 44, when Jesus says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek glory, the glory that is from the one and only God? So there is already in John chapter 5 this realization that the rulers, the religious leaders, preferred the glory that came from man, and were not serious about pursuing the truth that comes from God. That is why Jesus could stand in their midst and teach like no one had ever taught. He could perform miracles like no one had ever even imagined, and yet they would still reject Him. Now the religious leaders had already decreed that anyone who believed in Jesus would be put out of the synagogue, which was the greatest fear any Jew had, and the risk and the loss was too high a price, and many were not willing to pay it. This is why Jesus said in the previous part of our narrative that we must be willing to lose our lives now so that we can gain eternal life Later, They weren't... Excuse excuse me, verse 43. For they loved the approval of man rather than the approval of God. They weren't willing to lose their lives in this world so so that they could gain life eternal. They preferred the glory and the honor that came from mankind and not from the Father. Now, number eight in our outline, we see the consequences of belief and unbelief. Since Jesus has gone away and hid himself... This section is either from a different occasion or these were words that were spoken earlier. And if you look at verse 36, they would fit very well then. But John chooses to put these words at the latter part of this narrative because it is a summarization of Jesus' earthly ministry to Israel and that was coming to an end. And from this point forward, Jesus was going to focus on on his disciples and prepare them for his departure. So these words are going to express to us, first of all, the consequences of unbelief. Number one, to believe in Jesus is to believe in Yahweh. Now, consequence isn't the best word, but it is the blessing of believing in Jesus. Now, verse 44, and Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in Him." Who sent me again, this is a summarization. Jesus has made similar statements in john five twenty four in john eight nineteen and john ten thirty eight and he will do so again in john thirteen twenty and in john fourteen six It emphasizes the impossibility of believing in the Father apart from believing in him. any spiritual person, any religious person who claims to have a relationship with the Almighty, with the God of this universe, and denounces or rejects the role of Jesus Christ, does not really know the Father. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Me. And by implication, no one can know the Father except through the Son. So to believe in Jesus is to believe in Yahweh. Number two to see Jesus is to see Yahweh. Verse 45. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. As Jesus' is come, as Jesus's earthly ministry is coming to a close, and He has stood before these people, and they are seeing Him in the flesh, Jesus says, to see me is to see the one who sent me. And that is none other than Yahweh. These two sayings put together express the truth that those who believe in Jesus enjoy a personal knowledge of the Father and of the Son. Jesus and the Father are one. They are inseparable. They are of the same essence. And because this is true, number three, to believe in Jesus is to be rescued from darkness. Verse 46, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. So again, we see this pronouncement as Jesus being the light. He made the same statements in John 8, 12, and in John 9, 5, and he also repeats the same line of teaching previously in our narrative in John 12, verses 35 and 36. Jesus is saying, I have come to rescue you from spiritual darkness, Not from Roman servitude. To believe in me is to become a son of the light. Now the consequence of unbelief is very simply judgment. Verses 47 and 48. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. So rejection of Jesus' words bring judgment because he is one with the Father and because he speaks the truth. Jesus says that he didn't come into the world to pronounce judgment. He came to save the world But what we do with Jesus' words will determine what happens to us. We will either become sons of light by believing in Him, or we will become objects of judgment because we have consistently and continually rejected Him. In effect, we bring judgment upon ourselves by rejecting what Jesus has said. Jesus' words determine people's eternal destinies. Why? Because of who He is and because He speaks for the Father. We see this in verse 49 and 50. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father Himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that His commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Now, this concludes Jesus' earthly ministry. It concludes the call of salvation to the nation of Israel. And it's really very, very simple. You have seen all that I have done. You have heard all that I have said. You have ample evidence to believe in who I am. Whether you believe me or not is your choice. To reject me is to bring judgment on yourself. To believe in me is to become a son of the light. To believe in me is to serve me. It is to follow me. And to do that means that you will be where I am and you will be honored by the Father. We make believing in Jesus a very complicated matter. There are so many questions that are difficult to explain and to understand. There are many objections to what is said in the Bible and how that ruffles against our human understanding and our finite being. But nonetheless, we are called to believe in Him. What will you do with the words of Jesus? You will either accept and believe or you will reject and be judged. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank You for the clarity and the simplicity of this message. We thank You that Your words are truth and we know them to be true. And I pray that everyone who deals with the truths of this passage would come to terms with who you are. Father, we pray that in your sovereignty that you would open the hearts and that you would open the minds of those who hear so that you can come and heal and make them your children. Father, would you show us the futility of rejecting your truth, of rebelling against your ways? Would you help us? Would you motivate us to be inclined to subject ourselves before You, to be submissive, to follow You, to walk in the light as we have been made the children of light. Father, we thank You for the great blessing we know of Your love and of Your grace and of Your mercy. We pray that each passing day amplifies what we know as we experience a personal and genuine relationship with the Father through the Son and the glory that is involved in that. Father, You are great and awesome, and worthy to be praised. We thank you. We give our love to you. We pray that you're pleased with our hearts, with our thoughts, and with our actions each and every day. We pray these things in Jesus' name.